0: Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce-Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat.
1: Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life.
0: Today, we are joined by Michelle Geelan, a leading happiness researcher and best-selling author of Broadcasting Happiness, The Science of Igniting and Sustaining Positive Change. In this interview, we talk to Michelle about the difference between contentment, happiness, and optimism, when unhappiness is actually good, and the small everyday habits that can give happiness a big boost. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. I was hoping that you could start by talking to us a little bit about your career path because it is, I find, absolutely fascinating. You got a degree in computer engineering and then left a job as a systems engineer to be a television news anchor, and then you got a master's in positive psychology to become a happiness researcher. Is all that right?
2: Yeah, amazing. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with the two of you as well. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, so... (laughs) my my path to becoming a happiness researcher was long and winded but it ended up um, everything now plays into the work i do Uh, so really the major turning point i found myself on television i was a national news anchor for cbs news it was a job i had worked really hard to land you know and and there's so few opportunities at the national level um, i felt really grateful to be there the only challenge was that I came to a point where, because the newscasts were so full of negativity, that I realized that I wouldn't want, for instance, a six-year-old walking through the room, listening to what I was broadcasting, mm-hmm. and seeing the world through those that 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 lens, right? Um, and so, and the other part of it was. I came to realize that, and this was at the height of the recession, right, 2009, 2010, as we're spiraling out of control, we're seeing all these stories of people losing their homes, their jobs, their retirement savings, and feeling as if they didn't have happiness within their control. I pitched this idea to my producers. They thought I was crazy at first. That it, was <laughs> called, it was called Happy Week. And, uh, you know, in the midst of the recession, how can you take control of your happiness back and not just wait until the economy recovers? We got the greatest viewer response from the segments that week that we had the entire year. Um, and they were the the common theme was it was positive psychology experts coming in to talk to us about how to take control of your finances, have better conversations with your spouse if you're fighting about money, how to deal with a foreclosure. It was all action based and research based advice. Um, and so then I went to figure out what is this stuff? Positive psychology. It turns out it's a scientific study of happiness and human potential. And for me, it, I that was a game changer. I. I then went to Penn, got the master's. I studied under Dr. Martin Seligman, who's the founder of the field. And uh, what I love about positive psychology, it's rigorous research that helps us understand not just how to get people from uh, the, those affected by diseases and disorders back to baseline, but how then you can thrive. How do you get people on the plus side of the curve so they're doing really well in their lives? Um, And the uh, information that is coming out of that field and the research I get to do is just, it's not only personally inspiring, it's also incredibly applicable for people in all domains of their life.
1: There had to be some kind of specific turning point that was pushing you for a while, I imagine, Michelle, because I think, you know, when we start to make big shifts in our careers, it's like we've known them for a little while or there's been something underlying for a while that had to have been there, like your own optimism or your own search for something that was outside of something you already arrived at you have is there something like that in mind that you can say there was a there was a moment an exact moment where you thought this is it
2: yeah so i am highly optimistic and i have been pretty much my whole life but i'm also someone who's suffered from depression when i was in my mid 20s i had a year long bout with depression which was really challenging. I had, on paper, one of those perfect Facebook Lives. You know, we didn't really have Facebook at that time. But um, I had a great boyfriend. I was living in London. I had a fantastic job. I traveled everywhere, somewhere new and different each weekend. And um, and yet, I was socially isolated. I really didn't have friends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I didn't know anyone there. And then my boyfriend worked very long hours. So I was just home alone. I worked from home. I didn't even go to an office. Um, and it took a toll on me after a while. And so in the midst of that, I started to figure out not only how to change my mindset, but also my happiness levels. And so I, I did two things at that point. I uh, exercised and I disputed those anxious thoughts. I would write them down and work on the facts that showed you a different viewpoint. Um, which is actually something I wrote a whole chapter on that in my book because I I so now believe in how effective it can be. Um, But anyway, so uh, being uh, incredibly optimistic uh, later on at CBS and seeing the rampant negativity, I, I just said, you know, there has to be a better way. There has to be other things that we can talk about. We can use our platform to do things that are, you know, give people that information that helps them show up see a path forward. The challenge with negative news, and, and this is not just news that you see on TV or read online. If, if you're in an office where people are being extremely negative all the time, that is negative news, right? That's negative information in your brain. Um, if we have a barrage of negative information hitting us constantly, the real cancer is that it feeds our brain this lie that our behavior doesn't matter. Um, And when we start to believe there's nothing we can do to overcome this challenge, that's when our actions follow suit, we might, and then uh, that can also lead to depression as well.
0: I I feel like there's a lot to unpack just there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let me, let me back you up a little bit. Yeah. You've, you wrote a little bit about your depression in your book as well. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got out of it. And I, I know you, you talked about working out and kind of challenging the, the facts. Tell, me, tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm a big believer in exercise. I was a track. Well, I like to call myself a track star. I don't know if it, and anybody else would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this track star got on the treadmill when I went to the gym that first day back and I almost fell off because I was in such bad shape. Um, but so the exercise I think is is uh, incredibly effective, but actually not for the reason that so many people talk about all the time. Yes, it does give you endorphins and releases these positive neurochemicals and serotonin, et cetera. But I think that the exercise is especially effective because it teaches you your behavior matters. If you go to the gym and you feel just a little bit better, then you say, hey, I did that. Okay, I can do it again. And so the next day you can feel better and better. And when you start to feel worse, you can go back to the gym. Exercise can be this incredibly powerful tool because we see our behavior matters. Hmm. Um, and then to your question, because you can tell I kind of go off in <laughs> different, <laughs> different ways, but uh, is I think not only body, but mind is exceptionally important too. And so what I did was I fact checked. You have an anxious thought, you write it down, and then you push your brain to see facts that can together illuminate a new story. All it does is it helps our brain calm down, and then we can pick the action step that's going to help move us forward. Right.
0: When you were dealing with depression or now, uh, was yoga and meditation part of your practice, part of your exercise or kind of well-being routine? Yes, absolutely. So um, yoga has over the years been something
2: I I either have, have a regular practice of or keep going back to because <laughs> life with yoga, much better <laughs> than life without, right? Um, and meditation as well. But, uh, you know, I don't I read this fantastic article by Christine Carter, who's another happiness researcher in our field. And she said um, it was I think it was called Confessions of uh, a procrastinating meditator or something, like that, which that. you already know it's great, right? But she said, My issue is I've been talking about doing meditation for years and I keep putting everything else ahead. And so she one day had this amazing realization, which was that she was living in fear of not accomplishing and achieving what she wanted to professionally in life. And so she would always do those to dos on her list first. And then she would meditate, except what would happen. She would just keep doing the to do's and not mm-hmm. meditate. Um, so uh, I thought that that was that was refreshing. Um, so but anyway, for me, yoga is definitely a practice because i uh, again goes back to that behavior matters part. I feel I feel just so much clearer the rest of my day. I know that I did that because I got myself to go to the class or, you know, practiced in the back room. Um, and so it fuels me to want to do more of it.
1: I that's think, great. Um, Michelle, I think what you've just mentioned right there is uh, the focus on fear. You know, your example of, of the author saying that she was too concerned or too fearful that the thing that she wanted to become or accomplish got her attention rather than that what she actually wanted to, she wanted more to create. Would you say that's a big um, quality or component in what you've studied over the, over the time, that it's our fears that we end up focusing on? Or what, what's taking the place of happiness? What's the main thing that's grabbing our attention?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's conscious or unconscious fear. And, uh, you know, we have to, I mean, we look at society and the messages that we're receiving from social media and other sources, right? Um, you need this and that and uh, to be happy. You need to accomplish this and that. And there's all these things that we have to do, should do, want to do. Um, and what we're now seeing from the research from more than a decade of research coming out of positive psychology is actually if we can focus on our happiness now it fuels our levels of success for all those goals and real true you know the the really the true things that we want to accomplish not those things that we're tricked into wanting because of social media and all that stuff um you know at the focus of my my husband's first book the happiness advantage was how oftentimes we are following a formula for happiness and success that is broken and backwards we think that in order to be happy we need to accomplish this next success and then the one after we have to achieve success before we can find happiness but what happens? We achieve that success, and then we're happy for a minute. And then our brain changes what success looks like as we set a new goal. And then we start chasing after that, right? Whereas if we look at the research from positive psychology, when our brain is in a positive, optimistic state, it fuels every single business, educational, and health outcome we know how to track. It makes us have higher levels of energy, less stress, uh, You know, makes us perform better, more productive. Everything that you can measure, we have found a positive connection between being more optimistic and positive and that that element. Um, and so what that says to me is that if we take time early in our day, for instance, to meditate, to go to a yoga class, to uh, go for a 10-minute run, when we prioritize things that fuel our joy, that makes us better at handling our inbox at 2 in the afternoon.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to steal that. Fuel our joy. That's great. I love that.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, Michelle, you you mentioned Sean. So, for our listeners who don't know, Michelle is married to Sean Aker, who is a prominent happiness researcher, the author of several best selling books, including The Happiness Advantage, and um, the deliverer of one of my personal favorite TED, TED talks. talks. It's something we,
1: <laughs>
0: it's something we we actually referenced in our book in Living the Sutras. So. Michelle, I, I heard, correct me if I'm wrong, that when you finished your positive psychology program at Penn, that you emailed Sean that that's how you guys kind of first met and connected. So I was hoping you could tell us tell us about that. What prompted you to email him, and, and how did that kind of all start?
2: Yeah, when people hear that we're two married happiness, happiness researchers. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so... We are not happy all the time. <laughs> that is actually a disorder. <laughs> we don't study those people. Um, we <laughs> we have our challenges just like other married couples. But um, so uh, we, we, yeah, what happened was, so he wrote his, that first book, The Happiness Advantage. I had been devouring everything I could, not only the scientific journal articles, but also the popular books that were coming out around that time. And I thought his was just the most brilliant synthesis of the research and it was the most applicable um, because, you know, it's great to know all the research that you possibly can, but if you don't know how this uh, affects your life or how to how to apply it, whatever, then it's the who cares. Um, and so I thought what he he did a really nice job of is saying, okay, well, if I want to be happier, if I want to make my brain more positive and optimistic, exactly how do I do it? And he laid out the steps. And so just really great. Uh, so I wrote him an email, um, basically asking for some professional advice to figure out how I was going to turn this into a career. And um, I also did Google him and saw saw him speaking. His TED Talk wasn't out yet, but um, I saw some early talks and um, he's not hard on the eyes. And so... (laughs) Did you expect him to write you back? Um, I didn't know because, you know, he spent 12 years at Harvard. So I kind of pictured him in this all wooden um, (laughs) office with books, all these really fancy books on the shelves. And I, I don't know. And so I was like, I don't know if this guy's gonna write me back. But he wrote me the nicest, longest email with all the dates of where he was going to be for all his talks, and was like, "You should come out and come to one of my talks." And so, um, so I ended up. Did uh, he ever admit to googling you
0: too? Because you yeah. are very beautiful.
2: <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, he later told me he said I googled you, and that's why I was. I, I sent that very long email. It's <laughs> <laughs> like okay, good, good. Um, but the crazy thing is, so. I, you know, it's it's so funny how the world works. Mm-hmm. I had this feeling since I was young. So I gr- I was born in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, and then in Bethesda, Maryland. And I, but I got into my head. I was going to meet my husband in New York City. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why. And then uh, I got the job at CBS. I was there for a couple years. I I met this other guy, and I you know he looked promising, and it was great. And then he literally three days before we were supposed to move to Michigan, he dumps me. And so I was like, okay, then I guess this whole, and I'm moving from New York, right? So I guess this whole meeting my husband in New York thing is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sean sends me the email and the first date that I, could, I was available and it was the second date on
0: the list was actually New York. So I met my husband in New York. So you, you said this earlier that, you know, you might be two happiness researchers, but it's, it's not all happiness at home. And I imagine that, you know, what works well in a, in a lab might not always work at home. I, I can imagine. And does Sean ever say, like, don't pull that power lead stuff on me? <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the what are some of the realities of two happiness researchers being married? Yeah, so we very clearly know when one of us is not living the research,
2: <laughs> which, depending on exactly what one says to the other, it can be annoying to have it pointed out. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, you know, listen, I married my best friend, and in general, we're we're really happy. But I, I think when one of us is in a place where we're you know we're we just like we come down with feeling stressed and we're or we're you know anxious or that something going on. Um, the difference now, having been steeped in the research for so long, and having had put it in practice for as long as we have, we just we know how to more quickly get back to feeling better, and we also help one another in those times. Um, so, you know, I mean, it might sound hokey, but hey. We stop and we say, "Okay, let's just talk about what we're grateful for for the next couple minutes. And it acts as a reset for the person who's feeling negative or stressed. Um, We have said to one another sometimes if one's complaining, it's like, well, what do you really like about that person? And you know know what the other person is doing, but you can't help but allow, you know, answer and allow it to happen. And um, the thing with what I love about the positive habits is that when we... we we really do it with our full heart, uh, then I think you just can't go back to feeling as stressed or as negative as you did before after that experience. Um, So if I talk about the, well, the one thing that's actually really nice about that person, then I'm not really as annoyed with them as I was five minutes ago when I was ranting about them to him, you know?
1: Yeah. The the idea that you use, that you chose to use gratitude Uh, I want to make a point for the listeners for because it was something a little unfamiliar for me until maybe a year ago when Kelly and I were working on, I think we were probably going through the second draft of our book. We were looking for some examples of what we do personally. And Kelly said, well, you know, one of the things we do in our family at the end of the night instead of prayers is we, with her, I think at the time, not even three-year-old, yeah, yeah, three-year-old, What, you know, is we say things we're grateful for. And so I started putting together a practice, uh, a written practice for me, which I know isn't new and people have been doing it for a long time. But because I never actively did it, I just I'm a I think if you talk to any of my close friends, they'd say that I'm a highly positive person, but I never really took the time to actually articulate things I was grateful for. And I have to say it made such a tremendous uh, difference. Yeah,
2: it is. It's um, there's so many things about the practice that are so beneficial. So oftentimes it's not about the three minutes that it takes you to write down those three new and unique things you're grateful for. It's about the other 23 hours and change of the rest of your day that changes. And the reason is because in those few minutes, you're training your brain to start scanning the world for all of those positive things you're grateful for. So it changes how we move throughout the rest of our day. Uh, The other wonderful thing about doing it is that then when you have the opportunity to express a gratitude to someone, you have that information top of mind. We did a Fin a phenomenal study with Training Magazine, we found something that, I mean, this, to me, this is one of those mind-blowing statistics, uh, at least as, you know, I'm a nerdy researcher, so I love this stuff, but <laughs> uh, but uh, we found that, and this was cross-industry, at any given organization, 31% of people are optimistic. They're just not expressive of that mindset. So. Think about when you're, for instance, at a meeting at your company and you deliver an idea. There's a few people that will say, oh, great idea. Okay, yeah, let's build on this. And it's positive conversation. There might be one or two people that, you know, talk about the potential pitfalls. But there's one in three people sitting right there who are maybe not saying anything, but they do actually feel optimistic about the idea. And so uh, why I think that's a, a, you know really positive thing is that if you would like the culture for instance to be more positive if you can get those people to speak up that's how we tip cultures and how we change our the dynamics of our family or you know if people are friends in a, in a yoga class um, the more that people are expressive of that positive mindset and the things that they're grateful for the meaning in the work that they're doing or the practice that they have uh, then I think that that shifts things because um, people often ask me well who's more powerful is it the positive person or the negative person in creating a culture in, in a group. Um, and actually, so I've looked at the, the research, and it's not the most positive person who's most powerful, but it's actually not the most negative person either. It's a person who's most expressive of their mindset, because that then gives license to other people, if they're being positive, to also be expressive
0: mm. as well. That feels like it has a lot of implication for our current political climate, but that feels like way too much to get into <laughs> for this. So talk to us a little bit about how that works at home. I mean, you've said a few times now, and, and I love this, that our behavior matters, that, that that's what that we really can have an impact. So what are some of the behaviors at home that, you've, that you guys rely on to really um, stay happy, to make it all work?
2: Yeah, so we basically try to operationalize this research by doing small, tiny, positive habits. Um, and we get everyone else involved. So at the dinner table, hey, so let's go around the table. What's Three things you're grateful for. I know a lot of parents do this practice. And if if parents are listening and already do it, you're amazing. This is awesome. Keep it up because it changes your children's brains. We also try to, at the end of the night, if we maybe haven't done it at dinner, we'll do prayers and then we'll also talk about what we're grateful for. Um, And, uh, you know, we talk, in my book, I talk about this concept of the power lead, which is the first thing you say in a conversation to somebody. You try to make it positive and optimistic meaningful authentic and so what's the first thing that we're saying as we come through the door after a busy day you know is it oh my boss is driving me nuts or was it hey first thing this morning I had the uh, the best practice Uh, you know I did this yoga pose and I've been working on it and it went really really well you know what what can we talk about that helps the other person then scan the world for something positive to come back at us with um, cause you know, we're socialized to reciprocate. So, so I think that those, it's those small moments that make a really big difference. If we want to create that positive environment at home, it's constantly giving an opportunity for people to speak up and talk about the good things in life.
0: Well, and Michelle, I love what you say in the book too, about how it's so common for us to sit, to answer with, you know, how are you? And say, I'm so busy or I'm so tired instead of saying, Right a horrible commute in instead of saying, I'm great. I had this, you know, hilarious conversation with my kid this morning or starting yeah. starting that way. It's almost culturally. Acceptable to start off negatively. Yeah.
2: I mean, people say, How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm (laughs) stressed. Oh, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a a bunch of friends at Google and I absolutely love them. But if you go there and you ask people, Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so busy. They sit down in meetings. I'm so busy. Are you so busy? I'm so busy. I'm like, Guys, (laughs) I understand you're busy. It takes a lot of work to do those searches. I get it. (laughs) Um, And so, but How we start the conversation off then prompts other people to match in kind. There's only two directions that the conversation can go when we start off negative. Either people give us compassion. Oh, I'm so sorry you're experiencing that, which I've told Sean's always the correct response. And or they, (laughs) you know, they play misery poker. Oh, you think your commute was bad? Let me tell you about mine, right?
0: (laughs) Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Michelle to tell you about this week's giveaway, which comes from Alchemy Forever. I've been using this skincare line for a few months now and love it. I'm not the only one. I have totally caught my husband snagging the cleanser. One of my favorite things about their products is that the entire line is vegan as well as cruelty, paraben, and phthalate free. This week, one listener will get a gift pack of products from Alchemy Forever. To enter, rate and review this podcast. Take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at Kelly DiNardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Alchemy Forever. And all listeners get 20% off with the promo code SUTRA20 at their website. That's all caps on SUTRA. And their website is alchemy-forever.com. And now back to our chat with Michelle. So, Michelle, how much of happiness is innate or a choice?
2: I think some of us have a a, a genetic predisposition towards being more optimistic or pessimistic. But research now shows that while your external circumstances account for the prediction of 10% of your long-term happiness which is amazing, right? Because if I know everything about you, how much money you make, the car you drive, what kind of job you have, where you live, et cetera, et cetera, I can, as a researcher, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. Meanwhile, the other 90% is a mix of your genes and your environment, how you process the world. So if researchers estimate that our genes account for about 40 to 50% of our, of, you know, our, our long-term happiness and then, or that that predisposition the other half basically is how we process the world and how we process it is malleable if you work on being more optimistic by doing your gratitudes by sending a positive note every day to someone new and different by exercising by doing a handful of other activities that we've been able to identify in the research we see without a doubt your levels of optimism will increase over time. So
0: this was actually something we talked about in our book too. In in yoga, it's called cultivating contentment. And it's this idea that when we don't want what we don't have, we, we can be happier. We can be more fully present. But that we're not going to live at the tens all the time. We're not going to live at the twos in our life all the time. And I, I know in psychology this is called the hedonic treadmill Mm -hmm. and i mentioned this to to one of my students who said she found it really depressing that most of us live at a constant seven all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) she wanted she felt like you know an eight or nine would be more acceptable so so my question here then is two part we've talked about you know why it's you've mentioned that it's not always good to be happy all the time so what are kind of the benefits of being at a seven instead of a 10 or a two all the time? And then what are the things, What besides gratitude, what are some of the other things we can do to raise our baseline um, from a seven to an eight? Um, great question. Uh,
2: yeah, I think that's really interesting about her saying that everyone at a seven all the time is depressing <laughs> I thought so yeah, was really interesting. but i like i like that she aspires for more yeah yeah uh so i think it's so good to sometimes be at a two and it's great to be at a ten so you know the full spectrum, spectrum. yeah um unhappiness and happiness are not actually opposite of one another and I didn't realize this until a couple years ago. Um, it, this actually came out of a discussion I was having with Sean. We do talk about happiness research at dinner sometimes, so <laughs> which is always interesting. Um, and what we came to realize was unhappiness is a phenomenal resource, if you think about it, because when we're unhappy, it can be an indicator that something's wrong, mm-hmm. that we need to make a change. and unhappiness is what fueled so many of these movements, right, that we've been experiencing for equality and, and social justice and, and all that. Um, so happiness is unhappiness is phenomenal. I think the opposite of happiness is actually apathy. That's where we just mm-hmm. don't care anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, so to be able to be at a 10 and then a 2, we know the value then of, of each one uh, and it also, I think, being able to say we don't need to always be at an eight or a nine or a ten. We can be at that lower end of the spectrum. It uh, it's sort of a freeing thought. I think um, the other part about it is, if we go down to a two, we know that it's hopefully and most likely only temporary. Um, so. Uh, if we're experiencing a dip in our happiness and we want to reconnect with it, then I think that uh, the best thing to do is to engage in some of the two-minute habits. So ones I haven't really talked about yet, um, I, I really love this idea of a random act of kindness. Uh, what we often talk about is doing writing a positive two-minute email praising or thanking someone new and different each day for a period of 21 days. Mm. Um, That's a random act of kindness, but it's also a great way to express your positive mindset. It's, It's really phenomenal for focusing on all these people that love and care about you. And then there's a positive ripple effect, right? Because a person receives this nice note. Um, the reason we say two minutes is because if, if you're like me, the first day I did this, I wrote this really nice, beautifully crafted 45-minute handwritten <laughs> note <laughs> to my mom. I give it to her. She cries. I cry. And then I woke up the next morning, and there's no way I was doing that again. That was exhausting, right? <laughs> um, so instead, what we want to do is just write a two-minute, it's usually four lines, uh, note to someone that you know. The reason that this works so well is after day four or five, your brain says, you, you know, it watches as you meaningfully activate your social support network, and your brain says, wow, look at all these people who have contributed to my happiness over these years. And so, um, and what we know from the research is that social connections, the greatest predictor of long-term levels of happiness that we have. The more we invest in our social network, not, I'm not talking about, you know, online necessarily, um, but our real, you know, meaningful social network, the greater the predictor of happiness we'll have. With all of these habits, they're, the key is, I think, to make it your own. So if you're feeling, fueling, feeling fueled by social connection then I then you say okay well what else could I do and so what other kinds of random acts of kindness could I maybe I want to buy a coffee for a coworker and surprise her or maybe I want to pay the toll for the person behind me you know what what feels right and authentic to you because sometimes I you know at my talks that I give at companies I'll say okay so uh who thinks that they're going to do the power lead? And I get some people raising their hands and said, Who thinks that they're going to write these positive notes? And I get other people, and then, um, and who thinks they're going to try something else? And you know, so out, over time, I started to ask people, Why one, not the other? And they said, Oh, I'm, I'm just more introverted, or I'm more shy, I'm shyer. You know, I just don't feel like I really want to be writing a note. And so for them, writing gratitudes feels better for them. By the way, uh, on the note of gratitudes, if you do it with your spouse, there was a study that found that if you keep up the practice of uh, talking about the three things you're grateful for out loud with your spouse in bed, but right before you go to sleep, at the end of the six months, you'll rate each
0: other as more attractive than you did six months prior. So it's great. (laughs) I can't believe we're at this point in our, in our conversation, and we should have asked you this earlier, but what is your definition of happiness? And is there a difference between happiness and contentment since that's kind of what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, uh, so great question. And um, happiness, we had to come up with a definition and a construct for the research. And what we did was we stole it from the ancient Greeks. It's the joy that you feel growing towards your potential. And the reason I love that is you can feel the joy in the ups and downs of life, mm-hmm. right? Like So Sean oftentimes will... When he's speaking at companies, he'll give the example of, so you can feel the joy, you know, during moments of childbirth, for instance. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you only were witnessing it. You weren't doing it. <laughs> but he's so right. And, um, you know, the reason is because I think you can feel that joy when you feel that deep connection to something meaningful. So there might be a, an experience that people might not want to go through. It might seem stressful or negative, but you can still feel connected to the joy even in those moments because it's deeply meaningful. Um, the, the other uh, definition that I think is really important that we've kind of touched on, and uh, but I mentioned the word a lot, Uh, but not necessarily straight up the definition, is optimism, because I think that there's sometimes a misunderstanding of what it actually means. Sometimes people can think, oh, she's so optimistic. That means she's Pollyanna wearing rose-colored glasses and ignoring the negative. Optimism is the expectation of good things to happen. It's the belief Mm -hmm. that our behavior matters, especially in the midst of challenges. If optimists and pessimists are rational, they both see reality for what it is. It's just that the optimist believes they can do something about it, and they expect that the outcomes can be positive if they apply their behavior. Um, Sean one time gave a talk at a company, came back, came back, and he said, you will not believe what happened. I said, what is it? He said, well, uh, I, I talked about the power of optimism during this keynote, and then the CEO said, I'm totally into it. I really want to embed this research more deeply into my company. Can I give you a ride to the airport so we can talk about it? So Sean says, "Uh, of course, that sounds great. Gets in the guy's really nice car, clicks on his seatbelt. The guy gets in, doesn't put on his seatbelt. And after a while of driving, the seatbelt bell starts going off, you know, like ding, 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 reminding (laughs) him. So Sean's very funny. He turns to the guy and he says, Oh, so, and he thinks he's making a joke, right? He's like, oh, so you don't wear seatbelts? He's like, nah, man, I saw your talk. I'm an optimist. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> Sean's like, no, you're an idiot. Oh, my God. Right? But I'd still love to work with you. <laughs> And
1: so, as he often
2: says, optimism doesn't stop cars from hitting us and right. it doesn't stop reality from impinging upon us. What what we're talking about in the research is rational optimism. We take a realistic assessment of the present moment while maintaining a belief your behavior matters.
0: Then what is contentment? Where does that fall into this spectrum? Yeah. So, uh, contentment, I
2: think contentment is this beautiful place that fuels our happiness when we can be happy and content with what we have um i think that can be really good for our future happiness um i don't know if i'm explaining myself as well i i guess you know sometimes people say well if i'm content does that mean i'm not striving for something better and if you're talking about happiness being the growing towards your potential then maybe i'm just languishing I'm kind of sitting here content but um I think if if we're if we're discontent um then maybe we just you know we're we're that can push us to do some things but I also think I look at it sometimes as this negative place Mm -hmm. it's not it's not as propelling it doesn't propel us as for
0: farther far forward as maybe unhappiness Mm -hmm. would I love your definition of happiness that it's the joy we feel moving towards our potential. When when you're talking about potential, I think people often think that that has to be work. So or a job maybe. So talk to us a little bit about what potential is for you, what kind of you've seen.
2: Yeah, I think the moments in my life when I've been happiest is when I feel as if I'm growing towards potential, but that potential has not actually always been at work. I would say maybe 20% mm-hmm. of the time it's been at work. I am so excited about this potential I have to be a fantastic parent, you know, to keep learning and devouring books and trying new things and seeing my my children grow as human beings. And, you know, I, I, I love being able to work on that and try to be the best I can be um I I know that there have been times when I'm exercising when I'm doing yoga where I'm like okay I'm not getting my heel on the floor and down dog but I'm I'm getting close and you know and I'm never gonna be I'm like the least flexible leg person ever so (laughs) it's never gonna happen but I can feel after the first 15 minutes of the class that you know I'm getting closer uh so I I think that um the when we figure out where those areas are we take something to your point from a job to a career to a calling and it doesn't have to be in the work realm now in the work realm what we see is that you can we have if you look at pretty much any career researchers have seen that there's about a third of people who focus on it as a job they just go there they get the paycheck they're in and out, and that's it. Uh, some, the other third, another third, look at it as a career, right? This is something I can advance in. I'm gonna work hard. I see a future here. And then the other third views it as a calling. My favorite example that I've ever come across was a, a janitor at a hospital, and he viewed his job as a calling. And the way he expressed it was, and I'm sure you've come across this example because it's kind of the most famous one, but he had he worked in the ward where people were in comas, right? So there was people there for a long time, and he would come through, not only clean the room, obviously, but also he would change out the artwork with every season so that when they woke up, there would be something fresh for them to look at. Um, and I thought that that was so beautiful, you know? And you only do that if you view it your work as a calling as opposed to just a job.
1: Right. Um, so... In Tantra yoga, we say that that's uh, seeing the mundane as sacred. So he could yes. see that what he was doing was totally sacred, totally sacred.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, it's. I think that there is those spiritual moments in the everyday things we do. Like you can go to your job and you can be concerned about the accomplishments that you have, but you can also see that um, maybe the way you supported somebody in a meeting is they presented their ideas – and was was sacred was something beautiful it was this loving act you know that random act of kindness but um, obviously we don't want to be supporting totally terrible ideas but right. <laughs> but uh, but realizing that there's there is so much more going on than just the day-to-day drudgery mm-hmm. um, that's, I think, how we can see the work we do no matter what we do as, as a calling or, or, you know, being a parent or being a, a chef or cooking meals at home. You, you don't just cook to put food on the table. You're striving to put the healthiest food in, that you possibly can for your kids
0: or something like that.
1: Woo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: A, that's a lot that's to a, unpack there. That's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> we just have one last question for you. Okay. The subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And what we hoped to do is to really make this wisdom very accessible and personal and really relevant, um, very tangible practices. So what practice really helps you live this idea that your behavior matters, that really fuels your happiness? Hmm. I would say that
2: um, it's about how I start my day. Um, So the thing that I've been practicing is to make sure that I I build a media moat around my life for the first 30 minutes or so of the day. And so what that means is I keep my phone uh, in a place that's not right next to my bed and I don't touch it for 30 minutes, uh, the first 30 minutes of my day. Um, I think that's really good because, you know, the phones can be like a black hole depending on where you go and what you do. Um, Also, I think it's really good to protect our brain from uh, negative news, at least for a period of time. So, you know, oftentimes people ask me because I'm a a former journalist, how do I get my news and what do I do? And uh, I, you know, we did a study, we found that just three minutes of negative news in the morning can increase your chances of having a bad day by 27%. Hmm. Yeah, which is crazy. So what I try to do is spend the first 30 minutes doing the most meaningful, valuable thing I possibly can. And for me, and also because of the stage of life that I'm in, it's spending time with my family. My children are up, they're little, so they need attention. And so this is the perfect time to do it anyway. Um, But what it does is it If I can spend 30, at at minimum, 30 meaningful minutes with them first, it fills my soul. And then all the things that are going on in the world, if I were to read the news or uh, things, you know, happening on email for work or whatever stuff I need to handle, I do it with a different brain after that, about being, you know, after I'm conscious uh, for that period of time um, on reconnecting with the joy and meaning in my life.
1: Otherwise, the phone is your is the power lead, or the media is the power lead, right? Yeah. yeah. And and who's controlling that? Who
2: knows, Who right? Who knows?
0: <laughs> well, and I would imagine that that would let you be more fully present with your family, too, right? You're mm-hmm. not thinking about that email that came in or your to-do list. So it's it seems like it's got, it's a winner-winner. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: And my kids get fed and dressed, and it's like, oh, it's amazing, yeah. <laughs> without the
0: phone in my hand, you know? Right. I love that. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. This was, this was a joy. Oh, thank you. It's been so wonderful being here with the two of you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Michelle, her book, Broadcasting Happiness, or where she's speaking, visit MichelleGeeland.com. You can find links to this, as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. And remember, Alchemy Forever is giving away a gift pack of skincare products to one lucky listener. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot, and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at Kelly Donardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Alchemy Forever. Thanks for listening.